We are going to be this evening in Colossians chapter 4 as we continue our study of the book of Colossians. And last week we uh, really just kind of looked at um, biblical prayer and and praying from the standpoint of uh, continuing in it and watching in prayer, praying for... uh, for others, specifically praying for our missionaries and the things that, uh, that they need and, and God wants to do through them. And tonight we're going to just look at the next two verses of Colossians 4 as they pertain to really the relationship of a Christian to the lost of this world. All right, so here's the thing. When a person gets saved, one of the things that changes is our relationships. Uh, one of the marks of someone who is saved is a love for the brethren, right? When you get saved, you love being around God's people. You, you, you want to have that Christian fellowship. There's just something about it. I know Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within me. Therefore, I want to associate with others who also know Him and love Him. You know, we, we, we are drawn to the people that we are most like. And so... A love for the brethren is something, and I've, I've heard so many testimonies, I'm sure you have as well, of someone who maybe grew up in church and they were around uh, uh, Christian people for uh, you know, most of their life, and then when they got saved, there was a newfound love for them. There was just a new desire. And, and quite honestly, and this isn't the thrust of the message tonight, but quite honestly, it, it's, it's a bit puzzling to me that a person would claim to know Christ and claim to be saved and not desire to be in church, not desire to be a part of, uh, you know, the, 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 the family, right? We're all, uh, when we're saved, we're brought into the family of God and we ought to want to be around our family and, and be part of uh, a church body. So our relationship to the saved certainly changes uh, when we get saved. We become one of them, Right? But actually our relationship to the lost and to others in the world also changes and should change. Uh, For instance, we're told once a person gets saved, we're commanded to come out from among them and to be separate. We're commanded to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so we, we go from being lost and aliens... The Bible describes it being aliens from uh, the promises of God and, and the covenants of God and all of those things. So all of a sudden, now we are grafted in. We're made part of this body. We're made part of the family of God. And, and, and we're, our relationships change. We become a child of God. Our relationship to the saved, our relationship to the lost. Now, the Bible has an awful lot to say about our relationship to other Christians. In fact, in almost all of the epistles, you'll find some instruction about relationships between Christians within the church and how we're to love one another and how we're to be patient with one another and serve one another and forgive one another and all of those things. There's a lot of teaching on that. And I think most of us probably... uh, you know, if we were to do a, a quiz tonight and, 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 you know, have 
20 questions on how, what God expects from you in relation to other Christians, most of us would probably do pretty well on that because it's, it's pretty clear teaching in Scripture. However, I think sometimes there is a bit of lack in our understanding of how now that I am a child of God, how am I supposed to approach others who don't know Christ? What is my relationship now to be with them? And I believe that these verses, verses 5 and 6 of Colossians 4, really give us some very important and and necessary instruction in that regard. So since we're here, I'll invite you to stand as we read these two verses together. And Colossians 4, verse number 5 The Bible says here, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. You can be seated. The Christian's relationship to the lost. Okay, so now I'm saved. I'm a child of God. I am no longer what I used to be. I've been cleansed, I've been forgiven, I now have been called out of the world, called to be separate from the world, called to be distinct from the world. And while I understand some basic things about how I ought to live and act and serve within the church, I am not necessarily sure what I need to do in relationship to my lost family members. Uh, How do I approach those that I used to be friends with? They were my best friends in life. And now that I'm saved, we have very little in common anymore. Because the things that I used to love and that they love, I no longer love. Uh, I I don't go after those things. The the things that maybe I used to mock and criticize, now that those things have become my life. And so the people that I used to be so close to, I have no real... Uh, connection with anymore. And, and, and some of you have experienced this before. There are people, honestly, that, that were some of my dearest friends on earth when I was not right with God. And I thought that we would be friends forever. And then, when I got right with God, and God started changing things, not just on the outside of me, but on the inside of me, and my desires changed, and theirs remained the same, and the truth is, we just kind of grew apart. You ever experienced that before? But now we're faced with this question, how do we, you know, how do we treat that? And and, and we, we know, in a general sense, that we, we, we don't, treat people with unkindness. We, we, we certainly are not to be unloving to them. But we can't deny the fact that there are differences between us and the lost. There are differences in the way that we live. There are differences in the way we think and, and our desires and all of that. So what do we do? Well, he gives this admonition in verse number 5. He, he says this, Walk in wisdom toward them that are Without, And that's the description for those who are lost, those who are without, those who are outside of Christ. We are in Christ, those who are without. We could say outside of these four walls. Being inside of a church building does not make you a Christian, but we understand that the assembly of this body is representative of 
being, we, we are God's people assembled together, and so those who are without are those, in a, in a general sense, who are without Christ. And so, how are we to approach this? He says, walk in wisdom. Now, I think this speaks of a, really a deficiency in our, in our lives. When, when you consider what wisdom is, wisdom is something that we all need and yet none of us naturally have it. Have you ever thought about that? Wisdom is not something that just comes naturally to us. We are not born wise. Like, oh, this one came out with a, you know, an, an owl and a graduation cap on his onesie there. You know, that, I mean, that, that just that doesn't happen. We're, we're not, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, right? Wisdom is not natural to us. Wisdom is something that is learned. Wisdom is something that is given. And so we have to understand then we all have, to some degree or another, a deficiency in wisdom. It's something that we have a need for. We, we need God's grace. We need God's help. So when he says here, walk in wisdom, what he's actually admonishing us to do is to go beyond what would come naturally to us and to actually engage our brains and to, 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 uh, to, to seek the Lord for leadership and guidance in how we ought to walk in relation to those who are without. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Now, with that being said, let me just ask you this. You answer in your own heart. How much effort, how much time, how much intention have you put into your relationships with unsaved people? How much consideration have you given to, now that I am a child of God, how do I relate? You know what my experience has been, and I don't think this is too far off base, is that there are, there, there are really two extremes in relation to our relationship to the lost. The one extreme is to basically say, I'm saved now. I'm a child of God. The things I used to do, I don't do those things. The things I used to desire, I don't desire those things. Now my life is all wrapped up in Christ and serving Him. My, 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 my friend group is within the church. And so everything I do is, is in the, the, the context of the house of God. Now that sounds good, but the reality is that sometimes as Christians, we can actually isolate ourselves from the world. So much so that our light is no longer shining to the world so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven, which is what Jesus told us to do. We can so far isolate ourselves from the world that we never touch the world. I mean, we basically live our life, we, we, we're, we're with our family, maybe, you know, you go to church or go to work, you spend 40 hours there in the week, you do your job, you come home, all of your friends, all of your associations, all of your spare time is spent with saved people, and then there's this lost world out there that we never interact with and we never touch. And I'll tell you, I do not believe that that is consistent with walking in wisdom toward them that are without. God did not teach us 
to remove ourselves from the world to such a degree. God didn't call us to be Amish, to set up our own little colonies, places, and, 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 and isolate ourselves. One of the, one of the better experiences, honestly, of, of, our, of our life after uh, being married was uh, in 2010, uh, Bev and I moved to, and Isaac was just a little guy, we moved to Bowie, Texas, and we spent a school year at Baptist Bible Translators Institute, BBTI. And it's a, a, a missionary training school where it's, it's primarily focused on linguistics and how to learn a language and things of that nature, uh, how to adapt in a culture. And for nine months, we lived, at the BBTI sits out in the country outside of Bowie, Texas on about 150 acres. And it's, uh, you know, we had a class of, I think, 25 students and, and then their families, kids, all total are probably 50 people uh, living on these 150 acres in these different houses. We'd get up in the morning, we would uh, go, to, go to class, we would uh, spend four hours in class learning, uh, learning things. These are other Baptist missionary families. Uh, we would work together on the property there. Most of us were on deputation, raising support. And so we'd, we'd go out to these meetings on the, in, in churches on the weekends and, and preaching and presenting our ministries. We'd come back during the week and we'd talk to each other about how deputation was going in family and ministry and all of these things. And really for nine months, we lived pretty much among other Christian people. And that was... The vast majority of our interactions were with people, other missionary families, and people in churches that we went and traveled to. And I'm telling you that that was spiritually encouraging, and it was refreshing, and I mean, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful time spiritually. Except, about halfway through the school year, I started to get really convicted about the fact that we just were not, we were not doing a very good job of reaching people. Because all the people that we knew and all the people that we interacted with were other Christians. And as enjoyable as that was, I mean, it, it was kind of a little slice of heaven in a way because that's exactly what heaven's going to be like. We're, we're going to be in the presence of the redeemed worshiping the Lord together. It's going to be a wonderful thing. But while we're here on this earth, that's not what we've been called to do. Let me say that again. While we are here on this earth, we have not been called to remove ourselves from the world and only interact with other saved people. And I think that's a dangerous trap that we can fall into to not actually be walking in wisdom toward them that are without. The other problem is that there are people who look at that and they say, well, that's, that's wrong. We don't want to be that. And so they'll go so far as to essentially just detach themselves completely from God's people. And, and you know, maybe they go to church and that kind of thing. But for the most part, they just kind of blend into the world. And, and all of their closest relationships and friendships are with lost people. And, and they tend to look like the world and talk like the world and think like the world. And they're kind of worldly Christians. And that's not walking in wisdom toward them that are without either. Because even in that situation, now you are interacting with the world, but you are not differentiating between, between what a Christian is and what the world is. 
And so again, we've lost then our ability to be salt and light because we've shown no difference. And so neither of these things would be consistent with walking in wisdom toward them that are without. So how do we say then, okay, Lord, I need your wisdom to know how can I engage the world without being negatively influenced by the world? How can I follow the example of Christ and the apostles to be obedient in this, to, to, to reach out to the lost, to be connecting with them, to have relationships with them, but not becoming, uh, not violating the, the commandment to come out from among them and to be separate. How can I do this without, uh, or to use the phrase from James 1.27, to keep myself unspotted from the world while still being in the world? And there are some things, folks, I'm just going to tell you right now that I, there are just some lines that I'm not going to cross. There are some things that I am not going to do in order that I may interact with the world. I'm not going to go down to the local bar and sit there on Friday nights because there are people gathered there and I have an opportunity now to influence them. I'm not going to do that. I am not going to, by the way, and I know there are Christians who would disagree with me on this, I'm not going to put my kids in the public school system to spend eight hours a day being influenced by teachers that don't know Christ, by other friends that are coming from homes that are, not, that are not teaching the truth of the Word of God. I'm not going to put my children in that environment. And I know people say, well, you don't want to isolate yourself. You know, you, you need to, your, your children can be missionaries in the, in the public school. Listen, the, the, the public school system needs missionaries, but my children are not yet ready to face that battle. I'm not going to put them in that situation. And so what do I do? Well, I need wisdom because, God, I do want to build relationships with people. I do want to be interacting with people. I do want to be faithful in witnessing. And so, Lord, I need your help. I need to walk in wisdom toward them that are without. I need your wisdom to know how to engage them without becoming like them. How to show them love and compassion and understanding without showing acceptance of a lifestyle that's not pleasing to God. And this is something I think that many times Christians just have not done well at. The more conservative Christians like us tend to be more on the isolationist side. Those who are not quite as conservative tend to be a little bit more on, on the, 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 the liberal and worldly side. And somewhere in the middle, God is saying, hey, you need to walk in wisdom toward them that are without. You don't become like them, but you need to reach them. Okay, so walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Notice also then that he says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. And I told you how many, I've, I've mentioned several times how many parallels there are between uh, the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians. But this is kind of a shortened statement that's expanded on a little bit more in Ephesians 5. If we were to go back there just a moment, Ephesians 5 and verse number 15. 
Ephesians 5.15, it says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Well, I personally believe that this is a reference to the fact that Christian people know that evil days are an indication of the last days. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. We know that the, the darker the world gets, the more alert and aware we need to be of the coming of the Lord. And when you see things going on in the world that you say, man, these are some evil days that we are living in. Folks, wake up. Christ is coming soon. And while we might rejoice in that, and I do rejoice in that, it also places an urgency upon us because our time is limited. The time that you have to try and reach those lost family members is limited. The time that you have to serve God and, and, and to be what He wants you to be on this earth is short. And because the days are evil, we need to be wise redeeming the time. There's a, a sense of urgency that comes with this that says, listen, we better do something because Christ is coming soon and the vast majority of the world is lost and on their way to hell. We got a responsibility. And it's time to wake up. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 34 says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You know, as you look at the world and you see people that have no knowledge of God. Sometimes we can look at people like that and be a little bit irritated or frustrated. I heard, <laughs> I heard a guy the other day going on and on about how much uh, the Bible never speaks against slavery. And I thought, well, you just don't know your Bible very well, do you? But he's convinced of this, and this is a reason that he objects to Christianity is because, well, the Bible doesn't speak against slavery. In fact, it condones it. And that's a whole other subject. But I'll tell you, I found myself getting a little bit irritated by the fact that this guy is so ignorant of what the Bible actually says. He has not the knowledge of God. You ever find yourself getting frustrated and irritated by people because of things like that? Maybe I'm the only one. Do you know what the Bible says our response should be to the ignorance of people, to the things of God? Shame on me. Shame on us. Some have not the knowledge of God. He doesn't say, I speak this to their shame. He says, I speak this to your shame. Because it's our responsibility to be preaching truth to the world. And the fact that the world is lost and dying, and they're, they're dying for lack of knowledge, so many of them, they just don't know that they don't know. That's shame on us. 
Folks, the days are dark and there's an urgency and, and I don't believe that it is the will of God for us to just say, okay, we're going to just gather together and, and, and keep ourselves out of the world so much that, that we're keeping ourselves unspotted from them until the return of Christ. We're just going to pull away and we're going to have our own little Baptist uh, uh, compound and never touch the world and never let the world touch us. That is not what God has called us to do. We ought to be redeeming the time. We, 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 we ought to be more committed than ever. So he says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Then he tells us really how we approach the world. I know, looking out at you, at, at you all, I, I've had conversations with enough of you to know, every one of you has someone in your life a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker who they're a bit of a thorn in your side when it comes to biblical truth. They're skeptical, they're confused, and you're frustrated. How do I speak to them? How do I reach them? What do I say? When they say this to me, what do I say back to them, right? Notice what he says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Here's what he says. As we try to reach the world, we must speak. Now this, this is important. If we are going to reach the world, we must speak. You are not going to be able to stand before Christ on Judgment Day and say, Lord, I know you put all of these people in my life so that I could reach them with the gospel, and I did my best to set a good example for them. Jesus did not say, go ye into all the world and set a good example for them. Now, I, I believe in having a good testimony. But he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. In other words, you've got to speak. You've got to speak up. You've got to have that hard conversation. You have to be willing to confront someone with truth. Ephesians, again, chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us that we are to speak the truth in love. And one side of that is, yes, speaking truth. And folks, I know it can be an intimidating thing in the world that we live in where there is so much pressure to always be nice and to never offend and, 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 and to never object to anything. If someone has chosen a lifestyle or if they've chosen a particular persuasion, a way of thinking, uh, you can't object to that. That's offensive and, and you're hateful and unloving. And I understand that all of that can be intimidating, but it does not give us an excuse to not speak the truth. The truth is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The truth is that sin is still an offense to God. The truth is that the wages of sin is still death. The truth is that Jesus is the only way of salvation. 
And if, if we fail to make that clear to the world, we have failed to speak, we have failed to obey God. Now, I know that there are people that God put in my life and because of fear, because of intimidation, I held back and did not speak when I had the opportunity. And for that, I am ashamed. But may God give us the grace to be willing to speak the truth. Let your speech, that means you've got to speak, Notice, though, this type of speech. Let your speech be always with grace. And this means that even though we are ready to speak against error and to speak truth to those around us, we need to do so in a compassionate way. We, we ought to be ready to speak the truth with Grace. One of the things that I love that's stated about Jesus in his ministry is that he was full of grace and truth. Sometimes I think we have this idea that you are either full of grace or truth. You know, some people are really blunt and they're really offensive. And, well, you never have to wonder what they're thinking because they speak their mind. And then there are people who, I mean, they're like a chameleon. You know, whoever they get around, they just kind of blend in and agree. They're very agreeable, non-confrontational. That's the person who has grace. The other person has truth. And the twain shall never meet. But Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus was able to speak the truth and say the hard things. And yes, upset some people and offend some people. But one thing they could never say was that Jesus spoke the truth out of hatred. Because he spoke the truth in love. So even though we must speak, we're to do so with grace. Now again, we have a contrast. I told you those two people. The person who's never willing to speak because they're afraid and they're intimidated and they don't want to offend and that's not pleasing to the Lord. On the other side of that, I have known some people that kind of just like to stir the pot. They like to be controversial. They like to be abrasive. And it kind of puts a smile on their face when they upset some people. Think Donald Trump. Okay? Steven Anderson. Okay? Some people that you may know that are just always looking for something, some button to push. Listen, that, that spirit is not from God. The Bible speaks of the offense of the cross. The gospel, the true biblical gospel, is offensive enough without adding to it arrogance, pride, anger. So we don't hesitate to speak the truth, but we do so with grace. We speak up, we say what needs to be said with boldness and confidence, yet with love. Our speech is to be compassionate. Secondly, it's to be compelling. I want you to notice he says here, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. 
Salt is something that makes food palatable. And it's really interesting when you do a little bit of reading about this phrase, to be seasoned with salt, speech that's seasoned with salt, there, there was kind of this concept, apparently in the culture of the day, that when you, when you would use this phrase that your speech would be seasoned with salt, it actually meant there was mixed in humor and wittiness with it. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't think that the Lord is telling us, hey, you need to give the gospel and you ought to do it in a funny way. You know, God didn't call us to be a bunch of stand-up comedians. But what, what does humor do? Well, humor kind of, it can make something a little bit easier to hear. It can also keep someone's attention. And, and I don't think that the Lord is saying here to use humor in our approach to the world, but here's what I believe he's saying. Work on being able to speak to people, to speak the truth, to make it clear and plain, and to do so in a way that's compelling. Now, this is something that I, I try to work on, and I'm not always good at it because I'm not a great orator, But, you know, I could get up and open the Bible and just in a monotone voice just speak like this. And I could say all the right things, but it could be so boring that nobody would ever listen. <laughs> and so preachers have to work on sometime, sometimes their ability to just engage people and, and to speak and make it something that's, that, that's, you know, they're willing to listen to. Now, you might say, but that's just not me. That's just not my personality. Listen, you don't have to be a great orator, but I think the implication here is you ought to work on it. Oh, I'm just not a people person. Well, you better become one. I mean, you've got to work on reaching out to people and being friendly and trying to get to know them and showing interest in their life because if you don't do that, you can't connect with them, they're not going to listen to you. One of the things that, that, that amazes me about Jesus is even though he was so hated because of the things he preached, everywhere he went, people wanted to be with him. And I don't think it was just because of his charismatic personality. I think it was because he made an effort to care about people. And so this idea of, uh, of letting our, our speech be with grace and seasoned with salt, it literally means to, to give some effort into making sure that when we're speaking truth to people, we're trying to not only say what is true, but to help them to listen to that truth. To give the message in a way that they're going to be able to receive it. It is to be compelling. Our job is not in any way to water down the message of the gospel. But it is our job to do our very best in clearly communicating the word of God. Here's the thing. We have been entrusted with the greatest message in history. And the medium that God has chosen to use to communicate that truth is my mouth and your mouth. 
That puts some responsibility on us to try, doesn't it? To work at it. Because the message is so important. Maybe I could say it to you this way. Many people will reject the gospel because they don't like the truth of it, because they don't want to accept that they are a sinner, because they don't want to accept that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Many people will reject the gospel, but may it never be said that they rejected the gospel because of me. So I need the Lord to help me to be the vessel that He needs and wants to use in order that others may hear. Very quickly, our speech must be compassionate. It must be compelling. And then lastly, it needs to be convincing. It needs to be convincing. He says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What is he saying? He's saying that it is our responsibility, it's our duty to learn how to respond to people, how to address maybe some difficult questions. And folks, there are a lot of difficult questions out there. I have known people who are very focused on the subject of apologetics, you know, defending the faith, that get criticized. Because there's almost this attitude that, you know, it's folly to try to answer skeptics and critics. But the truth is that approach is just simply lazy. Jesus reasoned with people. The Bible speaks of Paul reasoning with people, reasoning of righteousness, opening and alleging out of the scriptures the truth. There was intention, there was thought, there was wisdom that went into uh, uh, the ability to defend what you believe. Young people, can I encourage you in something? Don't shy away from learning why you ought to believe what you believe. Because there are going to be people. This environment right here is very easy. So you can regurgitate what you heard in Sunday school or in junior church or from the pulpit, but if you don't have any backing as to why that is, how are you going to answer the person out on the street or your neighbor or your coworker when they ask you, well, you know, science says this, the Bible says this, so how do you know the Bible is true? Why would a loving God allow suffering in the world? If God is really good, and, and whatever the question is, you know these questions exist. And you will be confronted with them if you make the effort to reach the world. Be ready, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. What does that mean you need to do? You need to be in the Word of God. You need to be studying. You need to, you need to be well-versed in what you believe and what the truth is so that you may know how to answer every man. 
There's nothing wrong with asking a question. I'm not really sure. It seems like we teach this. Where is that found in the Bible? How do I really know this? Ask the questions. Learn, study, grow, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Because, folks, we've been called. We've been commanded to be God's messengers here on earth. And that puts upon us a great duty and responsibility to do our very best to reach them. So walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer, 